I'll wave to you from the finish line. McFly. That went well. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 7 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and I'm here today with my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, I know you've had your spring break a couple weeks back, but how have you been doing? How are you feeling today? I am doing great. Um, it has been a, an eventful past two weeks. Um, I've had some uh, good, positive developments in my uh, in my own life, and then, you know, sports-wise, it's been... Uh, been pretty packed this last week in particular is one of the one of the best weeks in sports in my opinion you get the final four you get the nba and nhl coming down to the end of the end of the season and then best of all you get the start of the greatest sport of all uh major league baseball um so just been enjoying and been enjoying all uh that that those sports have to offer this week yeah i saw your i think your tweet last night how your indians can go with a one loss season the keeping the hope alive yeah, I think so. I think the I think the one hundred sixty one and one is pretty realistic, and they're win- they're winning again today. So I, I really don't see what anything how anything can stop them at this point from from doing that. Well, based on conver- many conversations we've had off air, I'm sure that your team will manage to let you down somehow. Unfortunately. Oh yes, me too. They'll probably get. They probably will go one hundred sixty one and one, and then get swept in the first round of the playoffs. Oh my goodness, that'd be that would be epic. <laughs> that would be very Indians. Yeah. All right, so. Scott, one thing that we have to raise our hands and admit is that the Isle of Dogs limited release calendar did us wrong. Turns out that its wide release looks uh, like it's much more doable starting next weekend, so we're hoping and planning on reviewing Isle of Dogs next time, but we still have a great show for you all today, talking about Ready Player One, and then a bit later on discussing some of our anticipated movies that have been announced for 2018. So it's a, it's an incomplete list, we don't know a lot of the movies that are coming off late coming out, sorry, late in 2018, but we've done our best to rummage through what has been announced, and we'll uh, cross our fingers and pray that none of it gets pushed to 2019. Yeah, yeah, and I'll say, I think the release schedule for Isle of Dogs was more elaborately constructed than a Wes Anderson movie, so yeah. uh, I, I don't blame myself too much for, or, or either of us, for being fooled by, uh, by the schedule. Yeah, we, we, we over-promised, and uh, we'll, we'll, deliver ne- we'll deliver next episode on the goods. <laughs> Cool. So enough of the more logistical stuff. Why don't we go ahead and jump headfirst, or maybe uh, put our VR headsets on for a little discussion of Ready Player One. Directed by the infamous Steven Spielberg, Ready Player One released this past weekend, more specifically, I suppose, on March 29th, so on Thursday, uh, based on the novel of the same name written by Ernest Cline, which was a sensation at the time it was released uh, back in the early 2010s but now has garnered a little bit more skepticism and maybe a little bit more uh, disdain from a wider audience. But nevertheless, the movie and the book set in Columbus, Ohio in 2045 at a time when the world has been almost universally engrossed in VR technology and this world called The Oasis, a world created by Mark Rylance's James Halliday, along with his business partner Ogden Morrow, played by Simon Pegg. 
People in 2045 use the Oasis as a refuge from the real world, and Ready Player One follows the story of one such young adult, Wade Watts, played by Ty Sheridan, and his journey inside and outside the Oasis to be the first to complete three challenges that will result in the winner gaining control over the entire Oasis. Joining Sheridan in the cast include Olivia Cook in the role of fellow Gunter Artemis, as well as Parzival's best friend, which is Wade Watts, in the Oasis, H, played by Lena Waith. These three and several others are in a race against time to ensure that Nolan Sorrento, the CEO of the, we'll call, evil corporation IOI, played by Ben Mendelsohn, does not complete the three challenges first and gain control of the Oasis himself, as there are fears of what he would do to monetize the Oasis, the, the big capitalist monster that uh, IOI is. All right, I think that should probably get our conversation going. So, Scott, I know we're both coming off this movie pretty fresh, since I believe we both saw this movie earlier today. But what are your overall impressions of the film? Did anything in particular wow you, or maybe, on the other hand, fail to wow you? Uh, yeah, I would say definitely more in that latter category. Um, okay. I uh, was was not a, not a big fan at all uh, oh, of wow. this movie. Okay. I, I think that... Um, it, it it tries very hard to capture this. Well, I, th- this is one, honestly one of the problems I had with it is I don't really know what era it's trying to capture because it seems like oh th- like there are a lot of things that would make you think oh it's trying to be like you know an eighties pastiche like you know you have Van Halen opening the movie. Uh, with it was a great opening. Jump. It was. A, I loved the opening of this film. Like the I was I, I was I thought it was a great song to open the movie. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, but and like most of the songs in the movie are Our from eights. the 80s and yep. are well chosen. But then there's just other random stuff like, oh, we have the Iron Giant who's going to play a part in this movie, even though yeah. like that movie came out in 1999. Yeah, so I can actually clarify that part. So this, this is something that I I thought since the first trailer release. But so the act, so the book has Ultraman as the character, okay. but they couldn't get the rights to Ultraman. And so they opted to use the Iron Giant. I mean, you can definitely still critique why they opted for the Iron Giant, but that's the Iron Giant is not the preferred character in this film. Yeah, there's just some other weird stuff too. Like I was looking on Wikipedia actually afterwards, uh-huh. and like all of the like just at, at what all of the references were really. There are a ton. Um, I missed like, a bunch. <laughs> yeah, there are so many, and so many of them that you don't even notice. But like Nathan Drake, Laura Croft, like yeah. appear in this movie at some point. Like, yep. I don't even I don't know where that was, but that's uh, it. Kind of speaks to the point. My yeah. point about how I don't think this movie really knows what it's trying to be nostalgic for. Um, yep. And I think that a lot of the the references to uh, these you know beloved works are handled in a very uh, clunky manner, uh, and maybe that's something we could talk about a little bit more later. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, and then as far as the story and characters go, um, I just really never got invested at all um there wasn't really any backstory on either wade or um artemis played by olivia cook um really like the only thing we get uh, out of their backstory is oh they they both have parents who died like and that's not a backstory that's yeah. like maybe that's a motivation for why they're doing what they're doing but like that in and of itself does not like is not a backstory and maybe that's why we empathize with the characters but Personally, I didn't empathize with the characters because I thought they were pretty wooden. Um, I thought some of the dialogue was uh, very cringeworthy. Um, hmm. Perhaps my favorite line was um, "I'm sure it's going to be scene, the, yeah." Go ahead. A scene, a scene where um, where uh, Parzival points his gun at someone who I won't say, and he goes, "I mean, well, this is kind of a spoiler, but uh, it's okay." So br- br- 
brief spoiler alert. Um, he but, he says you killed my mother's sister. And yeah. I'm like, why don't you just say you killed my aunt? It sounds <laughs> it sounds so strange for yeah. him to just be like, you killed my mother's sister. Like if you know, imagine if this was some kind of distant relative, and he's pointing yeah. his gun, going, you killed my mother's sister's boyfriend, first cousin once removed. Like it's, <laughs> it it doesn't make any sense. Like it, and it just it just comes out really like yeah. the, some of the dialogue is like very tin eared. Um, that so, that is that I noticed that in my and when I watched it as well, and I was just like. That is such a bad line. I know. Like, I, uh, even even setting aside the whole, like, it's weird for you to refer to your aunt as your mother's sister, it's also just weird. I mean, like, I, I just know. couldn't ever picture myself being like, I'm going to kill you because you killed my aunt. Which, like, okay, sure. Unless you're an ego Montoya, maybe. <laughs> yeah, fine, yeah, that's, that's true. Which, again, like, maybe that's a disconnection there, and, like, maybe I, I'm thinking too hard into that, but I was just like... It's like not a. Yeah. It's not that great of a motivation. <laughs> like, another another moment is when uh, um, Parzival is giving this big rousing speech to like the entire oasis at, at a moment towards the end of the movie, and he's like, "I found hope and all this stuff in the oasis," and then he's, and he's like, "And I know this is kind of a groaner, but I also found love." And I'm yeah, like, yeah. It doesn't make it any less of a groaner because you acknowledge that it's a groaner. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, as you can tell, um, there were a lot of things about this movie which just annoyed me, um, and I, again, I, I never really got invested. I feel uh-huh. like there was a lot of there was this, there was a kind of a steep learning curve um, to like getting inside this world and understanding the lingo. Um, sure. So I think maybe that's that's an advantage that people who wrote the book or who read the who have read the book will have. And again, some of these things which I I may end up critiquing. You know, it's hard to say whether these are intentional or not directorial decisions. Yeah, or you know, we have to stay faithful to this work, which maybe isn't that good to begin with. Yeah, well, um, I've I've, I've, I've heard books, I've heard that it's not that faithful to the book, so I don't think it's going to be that. Okay. So, but you know, in general, I guess I was I was expecting for you know a very fun, uh, like saturday matinee type adventure which you know steven spielberg has certainly made a few of in his time mm-hmm. um but i you know the you know movies like indiana jones and back to the future which you know he produced he didn't direct but he produced um they have they have like likable characters at the very least um and this movie did not have that for me and i feel like it, there were also some missed opportunities for it to be more sort of subversive and more uh you know have more of a social commentary um but instead to kind of just focus on oh we're gonna you know wow you with a bunch of gadgets and stuff so not a fan in general all right well i i wasn't quite sure what to expect um from, from you i know that i i it really resonated with me and this is even true of my thoughts going back to the trailer like people were talking about this movie as an homage to the 80s but i'm totally with you like i don't know i'm 23 years old and did not ever live in the 80s and i got plenty of these references because most of them like aren't from the 80s <laughs> like they're well, just not and, yeah and here well and here's one of the things too about the 80s references and this is what bugged me just to get into it a little bit more about the references is that 
like they aren't they're not done in a very clever way it, it, most of the references are like oh here we're gonna say a thing that people love from the 80s and that's a reference but but it's like no you have to actually incorporate it in some sort of a clever way into the story like for example when they figure out that one of the clues is taking them uh it involves the shining um, yeah. Which, by the way, the scene in the Overlook Hotel is probably the only good scene in the movie. Oh, that, that but, scene is um, so good. Oh, I, I was yeah. dying during that scene. It was just so um, well done. But, but they're like, oh, this clue is leading us to The Shining, the 1980 movie directed by Stanley Kubrick, adapted from the novel by Stephen King. And I'm like, why are you explaining to us what The Shining is? And then... And not only that, but then in the next scene, there are all these references to The Shining. There's the blood pouring, pouring out of the elevator. There's, like, you know, the twins. And I'm like, well, if these people, if we need to have The Shining explain to, to us what it is, then we're not going to understand what, what, like, what these references are. Uh, so it, it seemed like it was really stuck between, oh, we want to appeal to, like, teenagers and, like, college-age kids like us, uh, you know, who... All of us may not know what The Shining is, but also we want the '80s, like the '80s kids, to appreciate, you know, these references. And like, it, they, they couldn't find a good balance between those two things without being like really over-explaining. Yeah, I was gonna, I was actually gonna say, and I agree with you. I don't, I wouldn't say it's the only good scene in the movie, but it is the best scene. <laughs> well, that's by, my opinion. Yeah, fair, fair enough. And th- <laughs> but it is the best scene in the movie for me uh, because it was just, it finally just decided to like. All right, we're gonna take this. We're gonna take The Shining, and we're gonna lean really hard into it. Yeah, and we're going like they leaned really hard into it without milking it either, which I really appreciated. And like, if it wanted to be an homage to anything, like whether it's pop culture or whether it's the '80s, you know, whatever whatever you want to say, it wants to be an homage to. It just should have done more of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that speaks to what I was saying about looking at the Wikipedia page and thinking, well, I don't I don't remember seeing any of these references. And, like, you know, there's a, there's a car race scene very early on in the movie. It's like, and, it's like uh, one of the first scenes. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, and on the Wikipedia page, it's talking about how, oh, we have the DeLorean from Back to the Future, and we have all these other, like, cars from classic movies and stuff. And I'm like, I did not get that at all. Like, I... I Wait, you didn't know that was the DeLorean? No, I knew that it was the DeLorean, but okay. I didn't get, like, that there were all these other, like, cars from classic movies. And, so, and I, I wish I could remember what another example was. But, like, the, the scene as itself is just, like, a, a bunch of cars crashing into each other and racing, like, basically. And, and so, like, I feel like you don't get those references. Like, it, it's honestly the opposite of what I was talking about before, where they're over-explaining the references, where they don't call enough attention to them. So I feel like there was they just couldn't really strike the balance of, like, cleverly incorporating these references into uh, the movie. And, like, you know, another example is, like, Percival dresses up as Buckaroo Banzai at one point, and, they're, and like, three different characters are like, oh, cool, it's Buckaroo Banzai. And I'm like... Look, the people who know what Buckaroo Banzai is, you don't have to tell them that he's dressed up as Buckaroo Banzai. And the people who don't know what Buckaroo Banzai is, it's not going to mean anything to them if you say, oh, look, it's Buckaroo Banzai. Like, I don't know. It, yeah. it annoyed me. Yeah, th- th- I will say that that it, it puzzled me why the phrase Buckaroo Banzai was said so many times in a five-minute span. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I was, like, really annoyed by it, but I was just like, this is not, like, like what you said. It's, like, not clever. Uh, going back to your part about the other cars in the race i remember that the motorcycle is from akira akira um, yeah yeah and then i recognize the mad max car the, like, well see yeah that the, maybe i just wasn't paying enough attention during that scene um, yeah i mean I, honestly I, this is a movie where you i'm pretty sure you could watch this 10 times and keep seeing new references 
Probably. Um, just because there's so many of them and they're so brief that it's like so easy to miss them. Yeah. Uh, anyway, going back, I think talking about my higher level thoughts on the movie, I am not as negative on the movie as you are. I hear your complaints though. I just had a really fun time with this movie. Like I, okay, I'll back up and say I went in expecting very little from this film because I thought the trailers were terrible. Like I don't know what you thought of the yeah. trailers, but like I genuinely I, thought the trailers were bad. I didn't think that they were that great either. I feel like they didn't really give me a good idea of what the movie was. Um, having not read the book, I feel like they just kind of assumed that everyone was going to know what Ready Player One is. And I mean, I did know what it was from. I, like I knew that the book that, that it was a book and that it was a very popular book. But I don't. I mean, you know, I didn't understand what the Oasis is or even you know what the really the world that this movie exists in. I didn't really understand what it was all about. Uh, mm-hmm. So I feel like the trailers kind of missed that definitely. Yeah, I hear. Yeah, I think that's true. I just, I and less so than that though. Like, I just thought like the trailers were like poorly like cut together. If that makes sense. Like, I just yeah, didn't yeah, yeah. like. I mean, and I think this the movie ultimately suffers from this as well, though to a lesser degree. Like, the trailers didn't like teach me to care about any of these about any of the characters. It didn't like what you said. It didn't tell. It didn't tell you really that much about the movie. And like most of the trailers are just voiceover. And like I've definitely talked about on this podcast before about how I don't love voiceover all the time. Yeah. So. Um, but, but yeah, so I had like pretty low expectations and I will say that the opening 15 minutes of the movie, like I was just so entertained by, I don't know, like, like especially like up through the race, the car race, I, I found, I did, enjoy the, I did enjoy the race scene to a certain extent. Um, but I'm, I, you know, I'm big when it comes to action, action scenes on, you need to clearly, like they need to be real clear on what's going on. And, like, I feel like there's just so much happening in that scene with all of the different obstacles and stuff. And there's so many vehicles out, like, involved in the race. And I understand why that's necessary for the story, but it was just hard to follow the action scene sometimes. But I do agree that it was probably one of the better scenes in the movie. Yeah, and the point is that, like, the opening scenes entertained me enough to where, like, I had more patience for the rest of the movie. Even though I I don't think it ever, besides the Shining scene, which we've already talked about, I think that the movie never really recaptures, like how much fun it is in the opening, you know, opening sequences. And part of the problem is that is what you said, like, you don't get, it never really sinks its teeth into the characters. Like, you don't learn that much about anyone in this film. Besides, like, arguably, you learn a little bit about the creators of the Oasis, which are, who are played by uh, Mark Rylance and Simon Pegg. Like, you learn a little bit about them. You learn more about a dead person than you do about any of the living people in this movie. Yeah, and, and like... I mean, I don't know, but, like, I was just, like, so underwhelmed by those characters. Like, the characters you learn the most about, I just, like, didn't, I really didn't care about. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I don't find James Halliday, who's, like, the in, the in-movie character, that interesting. And, like, it was just, biz- I mean, it was just bizarre to me, like, the, uh, uh, I think it's, his name's Ogden's role in the movie, like, which, which we won't go into, uh, at this point, at least. It, uh, yeah. it was just, like, confusing. Like, d- I didn't care, I didn't understand it, and then, like, there goes all the dedicated time to the characters who, like, I should be caring about. And at the end of the day, like, as fun as the first, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes are, by the end of it, I was looking at my watch, and I was like, okay, this movie's gone a little long. Um, It was very long, two hours and 20 minutes, and, like, no way did it need to be that long. Yeah, yeah, well... All right, so I mean, we've talked about our general takes on it. It sounds like you're you're fairly negative on it, and I'm like very meh about it. But let's talk maybe more specifically about the Oasis, and and if you had any particular concerns with this world that that 
Spielberg and Ernest Klein and uh, like paint for us, which we inhabit for probably a majority of the movie. I mean, I think it's an interesting idea, I guess. But I mean, I feel like we've seen concepts like this before of like, you know, this virtual reality universe where you can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. Um, And that's why I I guess I was kind of looking for them to do something more subversive with it. Um, Especially like, so like, there's when when Artemis and uh, Parsifal first meet, uh, there you know there's this moment of like he tells her oh I'm in love with you and she says no you're in love with this like the character in the game and I'm like yeah like now there's an interesting like idea uh, that they could explore more uh, and she's like oh yeah you'd be disappointed if you re- met the real me well then and and like th- this is part of my complaint a complaint with the relationship too in the movie and this may be going a little off topic but it's fine he he meets up with her then after that and it's almost like that conversation never even happened because he says one thing he's like oh yeah i'm not disappointed like you said i would be disappointed but i'm not and i'm like well no duh like olivia cook is who's playing the character it's not like you know it's i don't know i was trying to think of like a really old woman but um (laughs) or like a a dude um like of course you're not going to be disappointed in that but but then they and then they just like start kissing and i'm like this doesn't make any sense like there was no progression here whatsoever and it i feel like it missed the opportunity to explore this idea of oh yeah you have these people who you know are living out maybe existences that they can't live out in the real world in the oasis um and like you know maybe they're they're making their physical appearance appear a lot different and and i mean i'm not that's not to say that artemis's appearance isn't different from olivia cook's appearance but it's still like when when she says you're not in love with me you're in love with the character in the game well they're kind of the same like there's really not a huge difference i feel like between the character and between the the person in the real world herself samantha um and so that bothered me a lot Uh, and then like as far as the you know the world of the oasis i feel like we just never really got a good idea of like you know what is the scope like how is it organized like yeah. you know the, at this they're just like oh we're gonna go to the overlook hotel and i'm like you're telling me the overlook hotel like exists in this world and then there were and then like at the end of the movie they're like oh we gotta go to planet doom and i'm like what is planet doom like where is that like wh- how does that exist in this world like can i get some more explanation so yeah. i feel like the world building was very sort of sloppy and yeah like, i mean they do all that world building in the opening in the opening sequence, right, when they do, the, like, a flyover of the Oasis, right, if you yeah. remember that sequence. And, I mean, th- they spend a little bit of time on Planet Doom early on in the film. That's where he, like, where Parzival first goes and meets H, uh, right, or at yeah. least is talking to H and, like, telling him to hurry up and, and get to the race. But to go back to your first point about, you know, being in love or infatuated or however you want to describe it with with the character as opposed to the real life version of it i think this the the closest that this comes to like actually making commentary on that is with h who is a male in it's in the oasis in yeah, yeah is a male in the oasis but then in the real world is played by lena waith who but i feel like they still don't do anything with that whatsoever they're like oh you're a woman and then that's it like oh yeah no i totally agree i see it's, it's the okay. closest they come to do yeah, anything sure, with yeah. that but then they, they don't follow through because it's just like Every time someone meets H in the real world, they're, like, a little bit confused. But Yeah, and, and then, in like, ten seconds later, they're like, oh, okay, cool, you're H. Yeah, which is, like, fine. I think it's, like, good to be accepting of that. But they, like, 
yeah. built it up as maybe a theme for the movie earlier on, like you've described, and then there's like so minimal follow through on it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the Oasis, for me, I think it really resonates with me about how, like, they did minimal world building, which isn't something I necessarily have a problem with, but it became a problem when I just, like, didn't understand the world when it was important later on for me to understand the world. Like, what you said kind of speaks to that, but I think of that, you talked about the arousing speech that that Parsifal gives towards the end of the movie. He's like, oh, come join me on, you know, Planet Doom. And I'm just like... Great, like, do you expect then, them to instantly like, appear? seconds later, they're all just, like, rushing there. And I'm like, how did you get here so fast? Yeah, like, I assume it's, like, some sort of portals, but there's also a ton of them. How did they get there? Can you just, like, yeah. reform wherever you want in in the this, in the Oasis? Like, I'm not is sure. Is this the hyper rail that Elon Musk has been telling us all about? I mean, maybe. <laughs> maybe they've unearthed some new technology for us. But yeah. I, I'm with you. It's, like, an underdeveloped world, which could be really interesting to develop. Like, this creation is robust. I mean, at the beginning, you see, like, skiing down pyramids, <laughs> I think, is yeah. the one that, like, stuck out to me. I'm like, that's cool. Also, what? Because <laughs> yeah. they're just, like, throwing a lot at you simultaneously. But and also... Th- also think that, and this is another brief spoiler, I guess. Um, it's probably okay at this point, but um, like the fact that you have this like a, imaginative world, like anything is possible, like, and the the final challenge of the Easter egg, like to find the Easter egg, comes down to oh, we're gonna play, we have to play a video game, and then, and not only that, but then after he, you know. Def- beats the video game it's like oh you have to sign this contract and i'm like are you serious like he's he wins the challenge and now it's like oh yeah congratulations instead of like your here's your big pot of gold you have to sign this contract i mean it just seems so out of place with like this fantastical world of like oh here we have to go through all the legal formalities before you can get your fortune yeah to be fair on that point though i actually think that that's that the movie is trying to do that i think the movie is trying to set a very clear dichotomy between what we'll call the real world and the Oasis and how, like, there's this underdeveloped theme in the movie, which we haven't talked about yet, which is definitely, like, what like what is real and what isn't real and what matters and what doesn't matter in context of those things. And I think that, I mean, it's pretty hard to argue that this film leans heavily on the fact that, like, the people have entered the Oasis and are obsessed with the Oasis because the real world sucks. And... Yeah. I think that the reality is very cool in the Oasis. Like, you win this challenge, you gain control of the whole thing, you, you're like half a trillion dollars or whatever whatever Halliday said it was at the beginning in his monologue. But the real world is not that. And I think it's a, it's a reminder at the end of the film that at the end of the day, the Oasis is, is still just an escape. And I, again, I want to emphasize that I think this is, like, super underdeveloped and leaves a lot on the table, which is crazy because this movie is two hours and 20 minutes. Like, how, is this, how, how are these themes underdeveloped and, like, underexplored? Well, this is, this is why, you know, some books just aren't made to be adapted into films. Um, and, yet, like, obviously literature has so, much more, so many more capabilities than film does. And, like, you know, on the other side, film can do a lot of things which literature can't. Well, I think that they're, like, two very unique like distinct entities for a reason uh but like there are there are like cases where a a movie just cannot do like a 500 page book justice especially when they're you know 
when basically this book is constructing a whole world, like a whole new language, practically. Um, like there's only so much you can do in a two hour and 20 minute movie. And I think that's why you're seeing like a lot of, you know, like, like a twilight or, or Harry Potter or, uh, the Hobbit, but like they're being split up into multiple movies for one book. Right. I think that, I think that's an interesting point. I'm not, I mean, I just can't talk about this cause I'm not familiar with the book and I don't, I don't know the scope of yeah. the book and, and how well it explores the Oasis and outside of the Oasis. So it's really tough for me to speak to that. But I do hear what you're saying, and, and that's definitely a theme. I mean, I'm sure it won't be the last time we bring it up when we're talking about book adaptations, but I think one that even is maybe more relevant to your argument is, like, we look at It from last year. Like, It is the yeah. first part in a two-part movie. That book is, I mean, that book is really long, so it'd be pretty difficult also, to... Go ahead. Sorry. I also understand, based on the story of It, why they're making it into two books, because you have... Two movies, the, but yeah. Oh, here's what... Yeah, two movies, sorry. You have their kids for half the book, and then they're adults for the other half of the book so honestly there's a very natural dividing line in the novel that's true i mean that's a, that's a, that's a good counter argument to that that makes sense but the, the point is that like if you try to ham fist you know the full it book into a two hour i mean i don't know how i don't remember how long that movie was it was fairly long a little over two hours probably yeah um if you try to ham fist that into one movie like good god that would be a nightmare yeah it would be really bad it would be scarier than pennywise himself <laughs> Well, Pennywise wasn't that scary in the movie, so. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, we got a we got a cool guy over here. <laughs> I mean, I I I'm I'm. Well, it's another conversation for another time. It doesn't matter. There have been there are scarier versions of Pennywise out there than than the one portrayed in in the movie. I think. Yeah, I agree. I he's agree. he's like more creepy in it than than scary, if that makes sense. He's, yeah, because he's not as human. But yeah. Sure. Sure. All right. Anyway, so we've t- we've talked about the Oasis. I know that you mentioned that you found a lot of the characters, and we've kind of touched on them already, uh, pretty wooden in this film. But I would like to talk more explicitly about the characters. You have a, a few of them, but why don't we start with Ty Sheridan's Wade Watts or Parzival? Yeah. Well, I'll just say, like, I I was expecting that, like, I was going to at least enjoy the performances in this movie because I do enjoy people in the cast, particularly. I mean, I thought Ty Sheridan was great in Mud. Um, mm-hmm. which, if you've never seen, is a really great movie. Um, it's on Netflix. Directed by Jeff, Jeff Nichols, um, and starring, also starring Matthew McConaughey. Um, yep. So I thought he was going to be great. And Olivia Cook also, I really enjoyed. Like, she was great in Me and Earl and The Dying Girl. And then uh, I, and a little bit later on the show, I'm going to talk about another movie which she stars in, um, which I thought she did a great job in. Um, but, so, I mean, you know, I was expecting to... Um, you know, enjoy the performances, but I just, I don't think that even these actors could overcome the flatness of their characters. Um, yep. And like, I, I, I was struck by the impression that these two characters of Artemis and Parzival really could have played, been played by any actor of the same age. Like, yep. I know, could, I could envision anyone. Yeah. I could envision like Miles Teller also playing this role. Yeah. Like Logan Lerman. Yeah. Like, insert any of those people like, you know, who have the same sort of appearance, have this play in the same sort of roles a lot of times. Like, really, there was nothing unique that Ty Sheridan could really bring to the role, and that was a shame. And the same, honestly, for Olivia Cook. Yeah, I, I liked Olivia Cook and Lena Waithe more than I liked Ty Sheridan in this movie. I think that's a lot, to, and to be fair to all of them, I think that that's just because I just think Artemis and H were marginally more interesting characters than Wade. Like, I thought Wade was, like, legitimately a bad character. Yeah. I and I don't think that's on Ty Sheridan. I don't think... I mean, it is. he is what it is. But he's, like, this really naive and sometimes, like, really annoying person. 
and yeah, I wanted to. I definitely, I did want to know more about like where H came from, for sure. Yeah, H is a pretty interesting character to me, especially when you actually like find out when you meet H, whose whose name is Helen Harris in the real world. When you meet her in the real world, and you realize that like, oh, like this person is not who they appear to be in the base. It's like this theme in the movie, like this is this is the source of that theme. And like I said, that's underdeveloped and that's disappointing. And Olivia Cook like does a does a good job with what she's given, which is very little. But at least like. I found Artemis to be a more intriguing character, both in the Oasis, less so outside the Oasis, but in the Oasis, a much more interesting and, like, watchable character than Parzival was. Like, Parzival was, like, annoying at times to me. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm, yeah, well, I, I mean, to, a, to an extent, I didn't find those characters that much inter- that much more interesting, but I understand it's all relative. where you're coming from, yeah. like, with Artemis particularly. Yeah, and my biggest complaint, switching gears just slightly in terms of characters, is, like, I mean, maybe you disagree because, I mean, maybe maybe Wade is your least favorite character. I don't know. But my least favorite character is by far Nolan Sorrento, like, played by Ben Mendelsohn. Like, not only is this is this character just, like, so archetypal of, like, every, like, evil CEO that you could possibly yeah, like, imagine being in a movie. twirling bigwig, yeah. Yeah, and, like, I, I'll admit that, like, I like Ben Mendelsohn generally. I'm, like, not his biggest fan. But, like... This this character, like, I mean, it was just not entertaining. It wasn't interesting. He hadn't, like, I don't know what his motivations are. I don't know anything about him. I know that, like, he wants to take over the Oasis, but, like, all right, I'd imagine most people not CEOs of IOI would like to take over the Oasis. And Well, well I'll actually say, and I can't believe I'm about to stand up for this movie. Oh, boy. But, uh, I think that they did give him a little bit of a like motivation, just because you get some stuff with the backstory of how he's kind of a coffee boy for sure. James Halliday, sure. and he's you know tries basically tries to suggest some th- some stuff to James Halliday and j- about the Oasis, and James Halliday just kind of blows him off. So he does have a backstory, yeah. but it's a very cliche backstory that you've seen in a million movies like this. Yeah, like I feel like just as, like just describing that scene right there is also the, like, background for, like, three other villains we may or may not have already... Oh, villains in quotation marks. We've already talked yeah. about in, like... And we've only been doing this podcast for a few months. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm being a no, little yeah, hard. I mean, I, I think a movie like this is only as good as its villain, and the villain isn't good. Yeah, it's really... He's not. He's not. And, I mean, I think Ben Mendelsohn is a good actor who will recover yeah, from this. Yeah, he's, he's a good character actor. Yeah, but this... He didn't... He didn't do a good job picking this role. If he had to say, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure he's getting paid a lot, but yeah, I mean, that shouldn't be his only consideration. Sure, I, you know, and speaking of getting paid a lot, this movie did have a really high budget of 175 million dollars, and I will say, at the very least, the visual effects were very good. I liked the visual yes, effects. They were. I agree. Uh, I was a little skeptical coming in to the movie because the uh, visual effects were not that great in the trailers. I don't know if you noticed this, but like some of them were very not finished in the trailer. But, I didn't notice that. Yeah, but in the in the actual theatrical release that we both saw today, like, spectacular graphics. Yes, very good. Very, and I also enjoyed the soundtrack, as I kind of mentioned. Yep. Um, good use of 80s songs. Um, and, and I also like when they used um, We're Not Gonna Take It, um, which it comes up in a climactic action scene. I thought that was a good use of that song, and it was more like, you know, the fun spirit that I was looking for in this movie. Yep, Alan Silvestri does a great job creating he does a lot of um i think superhero movies i think he's done yeah. a couple like i think he's doing infinity war 
Uh, I think he did maybe the first Avengers movie as yeah, well. Yeah, the Avengers like theme. I know. Yep, yep. So you know he's very good at the kind of we'll call it uh, <laughs> climactic scenes of, of a large nature. And I thought that the music did a really good job. And and whether it was Sylvester's decision or Spielberg's or whoever it was to include these '80s tracks at specific moments in the film, like those were always. I mean, those were some of the most memorable scenes in the film because of the music. Yeah. Yeah, and and like Although I said, go ahead. It's it's strange to me that he didn't pair with John Williams. I mean, this has got to be only one of the of, of about three or four movies where John Will uh, that Steven Spielberg directed where John Williams did not do the soundtrack or did the do the score. Like it, it, it there has to be less than five, honestly, because he scores every single one of Spielberg's movies. Yeah, I mean, maybe the maybe the maybe the schedule was too tight for him. I don't know. Yeah, especially because the post just came out at the end of last year. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look into like the production timelines of these films, but it is very fast, especially since you know before the post, Spielberg had it had been a few years. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I think that we've already talked about the plot, and I don't know if you have any other lingering thoughts about that. We both seem pretty, I mean, meh, unimpre- to unimpressed with the the plot of of the film am i wrong in saying that no you're not wrong at all i think i've said my piece i don't want to pile on this movie that much more just because i feel like there are a lot of talented people involved who will go on to do better things but this was not a good thing yeah and i will and maybe wrap up our discussion before we enter kind of our own wrap-up phase with our favorite scene and, and rating i will say that like i did it sounds like enjoy this movie more than you did. Like I said, I really had a good time in the first 20 to 30 minutes uh, and, and and had that good time again pop up in, you know, the when they really leaned into The Shining, which we talked about already. We don't need to go back over. But, you know, when all was said and done, I wish that they had done more with the, with the with the cultural references that they kind of promised and ultimately under-delivered in depth and over-delivered in quantity. Yeah, and, like, as far as the challenges go, like, they're really not that clever. Like, it, it's dumb to me that the first challenge in the movie is, like, <laughs> he, to, to, like, to figure out how to win the race, basically, yeah. he has to go back and look at a video that he's watched. Like, they, they make it very clear in the movie that oh, he's yeah. seen this video, like, a thousand times. And yep. I'm like... Why are you just now realizing it then, you idiot? And, like, why has no one realized this before? Yeah, like, it's, it's been five years. Like That was so my biggest years. problem, too. Yeah. Like, five years, no one has... No one has figured... And I get, like, it's not an easy thing to figure out, like, not to go into spoilers, but, like, the solution to the puzzle is, like, not obvious, and, like, there's no reason why you would think to ever do that. It, yeah, and it's not like there's some other clue that comes up, which is, like makes everything clear for him once he goes and watches the video again. No, he just watches the video again, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I, I figured something out that no one else could figure out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also just, like, there's, like, no reason why that, like, video should have clued him in to, like, that obscure, yeah. like, one-liner, like, throwaway line by yeah. Halliday in the video should have should have clued him in either. It's, it's whatever. It's whatever. The plot is convenient, but we're not unused to that happening in, in some of these kinds of films but overall i do want to say that i had a good time in some parts of it and i do want to emphasize that because we have talked a lot about the negatives of this movie and i imagine that's because there are substantial negatives to it yes sure all right so <laughs> i know what you're gonna say already but what is your favorite scene from ready player one uh 
it's got to be the scene with the um, with the in the Overlook Hotel. Um, even though the, the, their whole treatment of The Shining in this movie really annoyed me, I thought that, like you said, when they really leaned into it and you know got some of the references going, um, that was that was the one moment in the movie really where the you know pop culture pastiching really worked wor- worked for me. Yep, and and I agree. That's one of the best scenes in the film. Just to be different, I'll say the opening race scene um, was was a fun one for me. I enjoyed that. Cool. All right, so. <laughs> Let's see how much damage you can do on this movie. What's what's going to be your score for Ready Player One? Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to give this a three and a half. Uh, it's a stinker for me. Wow, that is that's 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 rough. I you know it's real bad. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere near that low uh, for this film. Maybe maybe upon further reflection, and and I actually would be really inter- really interested to see how I think about this movie a week from now, because I think that like any residual high I have from this film is going to go away pretty quickly, and I'm going to be left with the negatives, but coming off pretty raw, like having seen this movie really only five, six hours ago, I think that I'm coming in maybe a little over what I might in a week, but I'm coming in at a 5.2. Like okay. I said... Well, I was expecting a higher number after the way you built that up but <laughs> well no because like i mean we just talked for half an hour about like how this movie True, really yeah. isn't good and to still give it a 5.2 i think just speaks to the fun i did have in the moments that were fun and, and i'm a little bit less negative i think on on some of the things that you were extremely negative on like i still feel point, negatively but i'm a little less negative so it's point two better than tomb raider in your opinion yeah, I definitely had more. I, I, the high, the highs of this film are higher than the than the highs I had in Tomb Raider for sure. Uh, yeah, well, I'll say the Overlook scene is better than any scene in Tomb Raider, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd argue there might be a couple other scenes that are better than scenes in Tomb Raider. Yeah, but... yeah, this movie just didn't like it. Made me angrier than Tomb Raider did. Like Tomb Raider just made me feel nothing. Yeah, well, Lara Croft's in both these movies, so maybe there's an yeah, ongoing true. cinematic universe to develop here. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um... <laughs> Anyway, I th- I think that uh, we should just move on at this point so you don't keep talking more negatively about this film. Probably, yeah. uh, Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll, we'll be briefly discussing a couple other movies that I imagine Scott's a little more positive on before we turn our attention to movies we're excited about coming out later this year. We'll be back in a sec. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It Scott. Scott, before we get into some of our anticipated movies of the year, why don't we spend a few minutes talking about some other films that we've had the chance to see in the past couple weeks. I believe you were telling me off air that you recently saw Thoroughbreds? Yes, so this is um, a movie that has been on my radar for a while. Um, I, since, honestly, since last year, I get the... um, a couple of years ago when I was in London studying, I uh, attended the London Film Festival sponsored by the British Film Institute. And like ever since then, I don't I guess I signed up for something because they send me like every every year, like a catalog of all the movies that they're screening at the film festival. So like I got that catalog late last year and I always like go through and write down movies that I'm interested in seeing. Um, and this was one of the movies like at the top of my list for like movies that I'm looking forward to seeing. Um, and uh, I have to say that this movie did not disappoint at all. Um, this is 
by far the best movie that I've seen in 2018 so far. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen that many. Um, but this movie is fantastic from beginning to end. Um, it's directed. It's the directorial debut of a guy named Corey Finley. Um, and basically it uh, is the story of these two um, very well-off uh, teenage girls who live in uh, a very rich part of Connecticut. Um, we have... Uh, Lily, who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who you may recognize from The Witch, um, if you saw that, um, Dave Eggers' movie from a couple years ago, very good um, horror movie set in New England. Um, she played the teenage daughter in that movie. Uh, she, she plays Lily, who is this very sort of buttoned-up um, you know, teenager who goes to a very good school and lives with her um, uh, mom and her stepfather, who is just the most heinous individual ever. Um, he's played by Paul Sparks, um, and so it's, Lily is, is one half of the uh, protagonist in this movie, and then the other is uh, Amanda, who's played by Olivia Cook, uh, aforementioned. Um, and she uh, also, you know, is very well well to do. Um, and they, they used to be friends, the two girls, but then something happened in Amanda's past, uh, which I won't spoil. Um, which basically Amanda kind of went off the deep end and alienated everyone. Um, but as this movie opens, there. Uh, you know, trying to reconcile with each other. Um, and Lily is helping Amanda to uh, study for her SATs, basically. Um, and in doing so, they, you know, their friendship kind of uh, strikes back up. And uh, Lily begins to sort of her, the facade that she puts on begins to be unmasked a little bit. And we, you know, we learn that she despises her stepfather, played by. Paul Sparks, who, you know, very, not hard at all to see why she despises him in this movie. He is uh, truly repulsive and horrible. Um, but that leads to um, basically the two girls deciding that they're going to murder um, uh, Paul Sparks' character, uh, Lily's stepfather. Um, and in do, in, while, while trying to conduct their nefarious plot, they um, involve a uh, drug dealer, a, a very low-life drug dealer, um, who played in his final film role um, by Anton Yelchin, the yep. late Anton Yelchin, um, who I have to say he goes out on a high note um, because he gives a great performance. Um, his character is just absolutely magnetic, um, and he's not in the movie a lot, but uh, really jumps off the screen like every scene uh, that he's in this movie. And Is this a so potential... I'm, is he? Sorry, I'm not familiar. Not super familiar with Thoroughbreds. Is, is this going to be up for a awards in the next season or was it on the on the table for last year uh i don't know but it's not an awards type movie it's not the type of movie that's going to attract awards attention i don't think um, well i was just thinking anton yelchin is the last perform. i mean he died and so. yeah tr true but i still i don't think this movie it's it's too small scale of a movie um okay. and uh I doesn't think doesn't have the lobbying power yeah exactly and yeah. you know i think that to some people it may be a little off-putting because it does take a more darkly comedic um treatment of this like you know obviously very grim subject matter of like you this abusive stepfather and they're trying to murder him but like that's one of the things which i appreciate so much about the movie um and i think like, is just the tone throughout and i think that uh cory finley also wrote this movie and he i think the script is like it's fantastic um and it it manages to do something which i think is very difficult which obviously this movie is trying to set out to be very like sort of edgy and cool and like the way that its characters talk and you know you don't believe that characters ever like that real people actually talk like the characters do in this movie but you know it's trying to be very edgy and cool and like i feel like it, it 
that's walking a very thin line because there are a lot of movies that try to do that and it just comes off as super cringy and you're like, why are these people talking like this? Uh, but this movie absolutely nails it. Um, at, like about as well as I can remember a movie nailing it since like Juno. Um, like the, the dialogue is razor sharp um, and like really funny. And, um, and, and but it's also, I mean, in addition to being really funny, it's like the plot is very cleverly constructed and it is really doggone suspenseful um in some of the final scenes of this movie when they're actually you know trying to carry out the plot like i was on the edge of my seat like gripping you know just really invested in what was going to happen um and the only quibble which i will say is there's about there's like about a two minute coda at the end of this movie um which i don't think is necessary i think there's a there's a natural moment where this movie ends and if you've seen the movie or when you do see the movie, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a natural moment where this movie should end, um, and it doesn't. Um, and it goes on to, like, you know, this sort of, oh, and afterwards, this is what happened. Like, you know, two, little two minutes. It's just, like, two minutes, but so just a little coda that I don't think was really necessary. And, it, I mean, it does tell you a little bit more about these characters and kind of reveal who ultimately who they are. But I feel like um, it could have established that the exact same way but in a, in a more subtle way if it had just ended at the moment that i'm talking about a couple minutes earlier in the movie um i don't think it needed to like explain things a little bit more i think i think we kind of understand at the end of this movie really who these characters are and like how they have uh progressed over this movie over the course of this movie um so yeah all i can all, all, all else i'll add about this movie is just go see it um i think it's fantastic um and in, in a just world, there would be Oscar nominations, honestly, for both of these actresses, um, <clears throat> because, you know, it, I think it would be easy for them to play very similar characters because they're both, you know, similar in appearance. They, uh, you know, the, the characters they play are, they come from the same background. Um, so I, yeah, I think it, sometimes it's hard to, like, not write the same character twice, Um but that's not at all what Corey Finley does here, and the two actresses really give their bring their own unique um, style to their respective characters. Um, so yeah, I can't praise this movie enough, honestly, and I give it a nine point three out of ten. All right, man, that's 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 some big stuff. I was uh, I missed this one. It, it had a pretty limited release here, even though I get a lot of movies and and didn't see it while I was out. But I'll keep an eye on it for sure. Uh, when it comes up more widely, and I do want to just just call attention for our listeners out there that you know Scott was saying that you know he wished this this film had was two minutes shorter than it was. So this film is only ninety two minutes. <laughs> so yeah, but but it's not so much that <laughs> no, it's I know, ninety two yeah, yeah, minutes. It's yeah. not the, so much that it was too long. It's just that the two minutes that they added on, I didn't feel like were necessary. Yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just giving I'm just giving you yeah, a hard no, time. I, but I, I, honestly, every movie is too long, so I'm not I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> Unapologetic. I like it. All right, yeah. So thoroughbreds definitely, definitely keep an eye on it. If it, maybe if it's still showing near you, because it, it is on a weird release schedule, just because of it, it actually debuted, like Scott mentioned, last year at Sundance. So not even this year at Sundance, like Jan- like back yeah. in January of 2017. So I think and that I, the Oscar noms would have come last year. And I feel like it's a movie that is going to come out on streaming pretty quickly like, pretty soon, probably. Yeah. I would say so. Keep an eye out for it because it's great. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've written down. I'll, I'll be interested to see if I like it as much as you do because you've given it some very serious praise here. Yeah. All right. So great. yeah. So in the last couple of weeks, I've I've also had the chance to see another film that we're not really talking about at length here, and that's 
Pacific Rim Uprising, the follow-up to Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim a few years back. So uh, maybe topically relevant, given Guillermo del Toro's success at this year's Oscars. But it's this is not r- r- directed by del Toro. This is, this is taken up um, by another director whose name is currently escaping me. But, but I do want to give a few minutes to talk about it because... I found Scott. I don't think you you haven't seen either Pacific Rim, correct? Uh, no, I have not. Yeah. So the what's interesting about this one, and I know I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk about it largely just in the context of the first Pacific Rim, which I also saw recently, um, kind of in preparation for this one. And it's weird because like the, this, it's obviously it's a sequel, right? So it's set like I think ten years after the first one, but it's bizarre in that like. Everything about this movie, about Pacific Rim Uprising, is like the opposite of the first movie. Like, one of my complaints of the first movie, I mean, I had several complaints of the first movie, but the first one is that, like, everything is set at night in the first movie, which is like, it's fine. I'm not going to complain too much about that, but it's like weird that, like, every scene happens at night. And this movie is, like, the opposite, where every scene happens during the day. And, and I think it's, it's like this weird sort of, like, overcorrection. Uh, and the director is Stephen DeKnight. I don't know if he's directed anything else. I'm not super familiar with that name. I'm not familiar with his name either. Yeah, but it stars uh, John Boyega um, <laughs> as well as a couple other lesser-known people. Uh, John Boyega, obviously, of the new Star Wars trilogy fame. Uh, but also with Scott Eastwood and Kaylee Spaney is, like, the other lead role in the film, I'd say. Uh, Kaylee Spaney play, it does a really good job, I think, uh, with the her charisma with uh, John Boyega's character. Because my biggest complaint about the first movie is that somehow all of the characters in the film had zero chemistry. I, like, didn't... Like, I, there are a few movies which I've seen have had worse chemistry between all of the characters. Like, usually it's, like, one or two key relationships that just don't have the right chemistry. And in the, in, in the original Pacific Rim, I was, like, it was, like, cringing how, ba- how, like, how bad the interactions were on screen sometimes. And in this one, I think quite the opposite, like... All these characters have really good chemistry with each other. I really enjoyed watching them on screen. I don't think the, the plot wasn't interesting at all. It did have a really good twist, which I'm obviously not going to talk about. Uh, but one of the, I should say, like one of the kind of more like perform, uh, I guess, character actors in both these films, played by Charlie Day, who I remember first seeing him in Horrible Bosses, uh, which is a really funny comedy from a, quite a long time ago now, I think. But Charlie Day does a great job on, in his limited screen time in both the films, but it, particularly in this film. And, um, yeah, I don't want to go on for it too long because I'm not, I'm not going to end up falling, uh, really positively on it because the story is kind of nonsensical and doesn't really make much sense, especially when, (laughs) particularly when you start thinking about it a little bit more deeply about what exactly is going on. Because essentially the plot is, it's been 10 years since, uh, spoilers for the original Pacific Rim, so if you're planning on watching it, maybe just jump to the next section. But, uh, since they defeated the kaiju, which are these, like, alien monsters from another... Uh, another realm planet it's really not clear because they come through this basically this like a uh, wormhole into onto earth but it's been 10 years since they managed to destroy the wormhole uh from the original pacific rim uh but then there's this weird reappearance of kaiju at this ceremony involving um kind of the progression of what's called the jaeger uh system so like the jaegers are these big robots that they built to fight the kaiju which are these giant kind of godzilla like monsters and there's this ceremony that's taking jaeger like the next evolution of jaegers which are uh remote piloted uh away from like the manual pilots of the current jaegers and during the ceremony like there's like a return either of like the kaiju it's like unclear in the initial 
the initial scene where it's like either kaiju or another like rogue jaeger it's really unclear uh, at the beginning like i've mentioned already several times and it kind of develops from there and the plot doesn't make any more sense than what i just described at any point uh although it does have a cool twist which i actually thought was very smart uh and bridge kind of the two movies together quite well I know that this is like totally setting up a Pacific Rim cinematic universe that I've actually heard the reports that it like might cross over with the Godzilla King Kong universe that's being built right now, uh, which would be just very strange. But I don't know if Godzilla movie... and, wait, Godzilla and King Kong are in the same universe now. Yeah. Did you not know this? So the, the legendary monsters universe. So there's like the <laughs> there's the Godzilla film from like three or four years ago and then Kong Skull Island last year. They're in the same cinematic universe and there's going to be a crossover film. I can't wait till we get Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, the movie. That needs to be the next one. Hey, man, if, if it's a legendary enough monster, maybe it'll get there. But I've heard that there <laughs> might be that this might be end up being tied into that universe. There's like rumors uh, about that because Legendary owns both both of them. And then and then Scooby Doo is going to show up and like expose all of them, right? They're they're all just wearing masks. I mean, maybe I don't even want to get started on like the live action <laughs> Scooby Doo movie. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Pacific. This is the best way to like wrap up my thoughts on Pacific Rim. Like, it was a really good time. Only if you don't think about the plot, I think that the action is really methodical and slow in the first Pacific Rim. It's like very measured. Like, I don't really know of a better way to think about it it's just really kind of slower than what you might expect from a big action movie. Like, Transformers, like, the action's pretty fast. And at the end of the day, like, these robots, like the Jaegers, operate, at least you would think they would operate very similar to Transformers. And it's, I actually read someone describe it as, like, it's very reverent to the idea of, like, large fights. It's very realistic. It's the original one being very realistic. Like, it's not like you can, like, swing a 1,000-pound piece of metal super quickly, no matter how big you are. And there's, like, that reverence, and that isn't carried over to Pacific Rim Uprising, which is whatever to me. And I thought it was fine because I really enjoyed seeing, like, a little bit a little bit more high-octane, quicker-paced fights in Pacific Rim Uprising. It was more entertaining to me than some of the fights in the original Pacific Rim movie. That being said, like, this movie just gets lost in itself in the plot. And the like, as as good as the chemistry is, like the acting isn't that great from some of like the more supporting roles. So it, it, I'm very mad on it. I give it like a solid like five point five. It's a very mad movie, but enjoyable. Um, I think that to if we were going to connect it back to Ready Player One, I'd say like none of the highs were as high as some of the scenes in Ready Player One, but also none of the lows were nearly as low as yeah. Ready Player One either. And consistently, I'd say on average, it's maybe a little bit better, um, which is why I'm coming out five point five. All right, well, I think it's just about time to turn our gaze forward and think about some movies that might be gracing the big screen later this year. And I think we want to caveat this discussion, as I did earlier, by saying we, of course, do not yet know the full release schedule for 2018, especially for the latter part of the year and, you know, Oscar season, quote-unquote. But we've done our best to parse through what has been announced already, and I think, Scott, you've, you've done a particularly good job with some deeper cuts, and we're just going to blindly hope that none of these movies' release dates are changed and push back to 2019. So, Scott, it feels right for us just to kind of alternate back and forth here, so why don't you do us the honors of going first? What's one of the movies that's getting you excited coming out later this year? Yeah, okay, so I've got five movies that I've picked out here, and I'll just kind of run through, uh, you know, we'll alternate, but I'll run through them in order of when they're going to come out. Um, okay. And then I'll, uh, at the end, uh, with, with the one caveat at the end, I'll save the last movie for the one that actually is my most anticipated because there is one that I'm anticipating more than the others. Um, okay. But 
to start out, uh, I'm going to go with a movie that is coming out on June 1st. Um, that is, I believe that's a wide release on June 1st. It's actually um, played at some festivals already, and that's one of the reasons why it's caught my attention. But this is a movie called American Animals, um, directed by Bart Layton, who, um, if you've heard of him, he is a documentarian. Um, his last movie was called The Imposter, which is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's incredible. Um, go watch it. Um, but that was about five or six years ago, I would say now. Um, but this is his, he's making his, uh, his feature film debut with this one. Um, and it is a, I don't think it's based on a true story, um, but it's, it's about uh, a group of four sort of well-off young white dudes um, who decide that they're going to um, rob, rob a special collections library at um, Transylvania University in Kentucky. Um, <laughs> is that in like is Lexington? Really- Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, yeah. I think so. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, it's it really random, but um, but it. I, I've read some early reviews of the movie. Um, you know, I, I caught my attention because of Bart Layton's name, and also because of one actor who's in the cast. But um, also, the reviews have been very good, and they've they've compared it to works of people like Michael Mann and Quentin Tarantino, um, which obviously gets me very excited. Um, and then, so the cast. Um, you know, like I said, it's four male leads. Um, two of them aren't really that well known, uh, but the other two we have Evan Peters, who um, he's you know you may know him from like American Horror Story. He's a consistent he has a consistent role on that show, um, and he also plays Quicksilver in the like the more yep. recent X Men movies. That's um, where I know it. that's where I know him from. Yep. Yeah, uh, sure. But then the the one name which I uh, you know also caught my eye was Blake Jenner, um, who. He, he starred uh, as Jake in uh, my favorite movie from two years ago, Everybody Wants Some. Um, and he also played um, Haley Steinfeld's brother in The Edge of Seventeen, um, which is another good movie. Um, and so I, I think he's just a really like charismatic young actor. Um, and he's also playing one of the main characters in this movie. So I think this movie just like is, it has a very good recipe for success. Um, and I kind of I kind of see it possibly being like the baby driver of this year all right well i am down for a bit another baby driver of this year I, I know that you liked it more than i did but i had a, i had some really a really good time especially in some of in, some, in particular some of the scenes in baby driver so if it's anything like that I'm, I'm down for it yeah cool yeah so my movie's actually coming out even my first movie i should say is coming out even more recent than what you've described and that is actually it's actually coming out i believe april or sorry may 11th so in that in that horrible space between Infinity War and uh, Solo, and Deadpool too for that matter. Um, but yeah, The Seagull, which is an upcoming uh, American drama film directed by Michael Mayer with a screenplay by Stephen Karam, and is based on the play The Seagull by Anton Chekhov. I know it's not the only time that she's going to come up today, uh, but Sharshi Ronan is one of the lead roles in this film. And also someone who is also pretty famous is Corey Stoll is, is also uh, sure, starring yeah. in this film who probably became fairly famous for his performance on House of Cards season one. Mm-hmm. And um, I only know more, more recently from his, his role in Ant-Man, although that wasn't the best role of all time. Anyway, yeah, so the, it's about an if you're not familiar with the play, it's about an aging actress named Arena Arcadina, played by Annette Bening in this, in this adaptation, and who, who pays summer visits to her brother... I think it's a Piotr. I'm not super familiar on uh, pronunciation of, of the names here. And also her son, Constantine, 
at their country estate. And on one occasion, she brings this man named Boris, who's played by Corey Stoll, who's a successful novelist and her lover, and then Nina, a free and innocent girl on a neighboring estate, who's played by Sharshi Ronan, uh, is in, who's in a relationship with Constantine, falls in love with Boris. So a nice, ju- juicy, romantic drama uh, uh, coming in. And I know that you'll appreciate this, Scott, since it, it, I think it is debuting at, at, in the Tribeca Film Festival in just a couple weeks. And we know that it, for a fact that it is only 98 minutes long. So I know you're excited about that already. Awesome. If it has two numbers in the running time, then I, it increases my, uh, my uh, want to see it tenfold. Yeah, I, I did a little bit more a deeper dive on this, and, and just to give a little bit more context, like this this, this film actually uh, was shot in like 2015, like a long time ago. Hmm. So it'll be an interesting insight because I think that's right around the time, it even might have been before Brooklyn. So we'll see what Sharshiran has got in this one. Um, but I don't know if you yeah. have anything else to add. Well, I mean, and I somewhere I guess out of, it went out of my mind that Annette Bening was in this movie, but that I mean, she's fabulous. So I'm I'm definitely excited for this movie as well. Yeah, I mean, in the, if you go deeper down the cast list, there's a couple other more recognized, like Elizabeth Moss is in this movie, and uh, okay, yeah, John Tenney, Brian Dennehy. Uh, I can keep listing names, but that's probably good enough. <laughs> cool. All right. Go uh, ahead. So for my next choice, I'm going with another movie that has already played um, at Sundance. Uh, and that, and also played two raves at Sundance, like American Animals did. Uh, and this is a movie that is coming out on July 13th, um, and it's called Eighth Grade. Um, and it is directed and written first by uh, first-time writer-director, but a name you'll probably be familiar with, and that is Bo Burnham, um, yep. who is uh, a you know a well very well-known comedian and musician. He he works music into his comedy a lot. I'm really not that familiar with a lot of his comedy. Um, Although he did come to my school when I was an undergraduate, I didn't actually go see him. Um, but I know a lot of people who are fans of him. Um, but this is uh, a, a coming-of-age movie um, about a, a young girl who was in eighth grade. Um, and, you know, there's really not a lot to say as far as plot details um, for what goes on. It, it, you know, it looks like your you're sort of standard coming-of-age movie in terms of the plot. Um, the, I, I should say that the actress who plays um, the main character, Kayla, Elsie Fisher, um, she's a, a, you know a newcomer and has been getting like rave reviews um, at, in this performance. Uh, but this movie really caught my eye just because of the trailer. Um, and if you haven't seen the trailer, um, go watch. It actually played before I saw Thoroughbreds, um, and it is hilarious. And like it looks like it's going to be like the perfect blend of like hilarious and heartbreaking at the same time um which is like what you want from a coming of age movie and uh you know the, again the reviews that have come out for it have been superb and so that just makes me more excited to see it um so yeah this is this this should be a good one on july 13th cool yeah i, I this one this one is a new i think i'd seen the the name of the movie but i didn't like i hadn't clicked on it so this is good to, sure. to hear your perspective on it and, and i know you, you still gotta see have you seen love simon yet you gotta see love simon if you want to come in of age uh, yeah i need to see that too yep cool all right so my next movie so I'm, I'm fast forwarding like way to the end of the year now all my movies now are coming out in november and december so coming out well tentatively as of right now november 9th uh the girl in the spider's web I don't know if you're familiar with this sure, yeah. movie. I know this you're is, familiar uh, with, with the Claire series. Foy, right, playing. Yeah, so this is so this is a well, it's like weird to call it a reboot because it it's a little okay. So like to maybe to back up a little bit, like so these so the girl with a dragon tattoo came out a few years back, or at least the American version. It had Daniel Craig and I think was it Rooney Mara in it. Yeah. 
and that was an that was a kind of a U.S. slash like you know Western European adaptation of the book Girl in the Spider's Web, which is a Swedish novel written by um, oh gosh, how am I blanking? Stieg Larsson. Yeah, Stieg Larsson, and so that he wrote three books which were all published posthumously. And you know, there's uh, Swedish versions of the of the films as well, I believe, which are actually very good. Yeah, which uh, are very. Numi Rapace, yeah, good. yeah, Numi Rapace. She's she, yeah, very good. Would recommend those. Um, I, I mean, I'd also recommend the Daniel Craig version as well. I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, it's good as well. Yeah, yeah uh, I believe it has. Yeah, anyway, um, quite good. And then so, but the pro, so since Stieg Larsson's death and the popularity of these books, David Lagerkrantz was commissioned by the estate of Stieg Larsson to continue to write books in the series. And he wrote one that came out a few years back called uh, The Girl in the Spider's Web, which was meant as kind of a, a soft reboot of the series because it continues and assumes all the plot details from the previous books. It is a continuation, but it's several years later, and it, it kind of presses a reset button on some of the relationships in the movie, I've read. I don't know if you've read the book. I've read. I've read this recent. I haven't read the most recent one, which came out this year. But I read *Girl in the Spider's Web*. wasn't as good as the Steve Larson books. But I am excited about this new film. Uh, it, it is again kind of a. I think this actually might be somewhat of like a hard reboot for the movies because my understanding is that it's maybe going to take some liberties with the novel and maybe maybe completely cut ties with previous relationships. But as you mentioned, Claire Foy is playing Elizabeth Salander of *The Crown* fame. She plays Queen Elizabeth on the Crown, although I suppose not anymore because isn't like the next series like going into the future and changing. Yeah, there's an older actress who's going to play her. Right. Yeah, and uh, an, the man playing Mikhail Blumkus, who's like the other main character in the series, is someone I've literally never heard of before. Sphere Gunnarsson. Um, I'm probably butchering the name, but oh yeah, you don't know the old Sphere. <laughs> yeah, Sphere. Yeah. Um, never heard of him. I clicked on his Wikipedia page. He, there's literally nothing there. So <laughs> he's got, you're going to get a fresh take. He may yeah. not be a real person. Yeah. He may be a fake person. Who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe it's, uh, just, I don't know. What's someone that we can like put in the film who's dead and like, or like have an actor, like, kind of like what they did with, uh, Princess Leia in Rogue One after, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. They just like have an Philip old Seymour, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, maybe like, maybe maybe that's what it is. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, but way down <laughs> way down the casting list in this movie there is Vicky Crepes. So may, maybe there'll be oh, a record. interesting. Uh that she like on her on the Wikipedia page of the movie, she's not even listed at like in her role, so literally no idea how significant her role will be if she will even rec- like see her in the movie for longer than 5 seconds. Yeah. But n- nevertheless, um Claire Foy, great actress. It'll be interesting to see. I don't know if she's like done. I guess she did. she was in Unsane, which just came out a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I was going to say she hasn't really done that many movies for, in spite of her popularity on The Crown, but Unsane yeah. just came out. But yeah, so I'm looking forward to this. I'm a fan of the series, which probably drives my uh, anticipation of this, and it, we'll see if it's actually a good movie. Yeah, uh, I've seen all of the movies, including the Swedish ones, so I'll be looking forward to it as well. I've only read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, though. Um, yeah, it's but, probably it's probably um, the best book. It's it's like yeah. definitely the best book of the series. Yeah. Uh, okay, so moving on to my next choice, and we're also going to fast forward a little bit uh, all the way towards October 19th. Um, and this is a movie which just kind of crossed my radar the other day. Um, but there are a lot of good names involved in the trailer. It makes it look fantastic. And that is this movie called Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, and originally I thought this was based on a true story just from reading the description, but it's actually not. It's fictionalized. Um, but it's a story of a uh, celebrity biographer named Lee Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she's sort of a, if you know, if you've watched the trailer, you, you get that she's sort of a, she, she was a bestseller, but she sort of passed her, 
uh, past her prime now, and, and her books are basically just being sold in bargain bins at bookstores. Um, and so to sort of make herself relevant again, um, she decides, uh, along with uh, a friend of hers, that they're going to start forging documents, uh, basically, uh, and trying to uh, pretend that they uh, uh, belong to old writers. Um, and like, so like, for example, like letters that one writer wrote to another, like, um, you know, she, she's basically forging these documents and then turning them into like bookstores and antiques collectors and stuff in, in order to get money. Um, but then, of course, her deception starts getting exposed. Um, so it, it looks like a very interesting story. Like I like movies like this. Uh, another example would be Shattered Glass, um, which, of course, is a true story about Stephen Glass, who forged stories for the New Republic. Um but, uh, the, and the, again, like I said, some of the names involved are really strong. Melissa McCarthy is playing um, Lee Israel. Um, I'm not a fan of some of her more comedic uh, movies recently, um, but I do love her from, back from her days on Gilmore Girls. Um, so uh, I, I think that she'll do a good job in this movie just from looking at the trailer. Um, and then directing this movie is Marielle Heller, who, um, this is her second feature, but she set Sundance on fire a few years ago with her debut, which was called The Diary of a Teenage Girl, mm -hmm. um, which is a movie that I still haven't seen, but really which was like the talk of Sundance back the year that it came out. Um, so we'll see if she can strike gold again in a uh, larger budget film. And then it's the screenplay for this movie is actually written by Nicole Hollis Center, um, which is yeah, another notable name, um, sort of an independent cinema. Um She's been writing movies ever since back, like, Lovely and Amazing, back all the way in, um, probably 2000, uh, was, like, her, her big breakthrough. Uh, but most recently, she worked on um, Enough Said, which was the uh, romantic comedy with um, James Gandolfini and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, um, which... His last film, right? Good reviews. Do what? Wasn't that Gandolfini's last movie? It was, yeah. Yep. Um, it had it, it had great reviews. Um, I didn't see it, but it had great reviews. Um, and... Yeah, she's she's a she's a known commodity for sure in like the independent um, cinema world. But this is um, kind of like kind of like uh, enough said was this is a sort of a bigger budget movie for her as well. Um, so I think again, this is all, all of the names involved. Really, uh, this should be a recipe for success. Well, I'm certainly hoping so. I, I, this is a movie that had come across my radar, so, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and I, and I really hope it does deliver. All right, so for me, this is probably the most... I mean, I'd be surprised if most of our listeners didn't already know about this movie coming out later this year, so this is my one indulgence, just because I'm, I'm such a big fan of this franchise. And uh, But Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald is coming out the 16th of November. I couldn't be more excited. The trailer dropped recently, I think uh, maybe a couple weeks ago, and, you know... The names are all recognizable. People, fans of the franchise probably already know who the actors are in this movie, but Eddie Redmayne is playing Newt Scamander. You have Catherine Waterston reprising her role as Tina. Dan Fogler as Jacob Kowalski. Uh, Ezra Miller is returning in this movie, although I don't know how prominent his role is going to be. But maybe a new member of the cast, which had me so excited when I first heard this announcement, and then even more excited when I saw him in the trailer, Jude Law is playing Albus Dumbledore. I couldn't be more excited. I love Jude Law. Uh, it's just, I'm really excited about this movie. Um, Zoe Kravitz is in this film, even, as uh, Lita Lestrange, who I am not super familiar with that character, but the Lestrange name is a familiar one, so we'll see how that relates. But, I mean, I don't really have too much to add other than I'm really excited about this movie. It's, again, directed by David Yates, who's done, I think, maybe the last three or f maybe maybe last five Harry Potter movies he, in the yeah, franchise. Yeah, he did several of them. 
I think he did five, six, and then the two parts of seven, and then um, obviously the first Fantastic Beasts movie in this franchise. So we'll see. There's rumors that he might not continue to make them past this one, but we'll see. But yeah, directed by David Yates and written by J.K. Rowling. So you know, this is this this is as, as close as we're ever going to get to a, another book outside of maybe the play that was written a couple. A couple, what, is it like a year and a half ago now? Even though that really wasn't written yeah. by J.K. Rowling. That was written by somebody else. Uh, anyway, yeah, excited about this movie. Don't have much more to add. I don't know if you want to add anything. Uh, I still need to catch up with the first one, actually. But oh, wow, really? You haven't seen the first one? To... I still haven't. Um, oh, wow. Eddie Redmayne. I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about Eddie Redmayne, but I love him. And he's... I'm, not a huge, I'm not a huge fan, and maybe that's one of the reasons why oh, I interesting. haven't seen it yet. Okay. But I well, will what's that catch from? up with it in time for the second one. Did you just not like Theory of Everything or The Danish Girl or... Uh, yeah, I'm, well, I think, yeah, I think he picks kind of, um, non-adventurous roles, really, and also, I think, like, I don't know, in Les Mis, I thought he was a really bad Marius, and I guess that has kind of soured my opinion on him, because I love Les Mis so much, and I'm, like, a purist, yeah. so I didn't, I didn't enjoy him as Marius, and so, and also, um, when he won the Oscar, he beat out... Oh, yeah, I agree, I'm with you on this. Michael, I, it was Michael Keaton, wasn't it? Yeah, for Birdman, I think. For Birdman, yeah, yeah. I remember being really angry. So, yeah, I remember that it's too. Probably, it's probably an irrational like distaste towards him, but um, I do, I am going to catch up with the first one. Yeah, I will say comes out. as a plug for if you, if there are any people out there who haven't who haven't watched the first Fantastic Beasts, like I think it just takes all the really great parts of like the magical universe in the first in like the Harry Potter franchise and like dials them up to like a higher intensity where like there's so much more magic in Fantastic Beasts, which is awesome. Like, that's always one of the things that I wanted to see more of on screen, is, like, just more magic being done. Because it's, like, so cool, and, like, you can portray it in so many different ways. And Fantastic Beasts does a, a really great job with that, and I really enjoyed that. And I'm, based on the trailer, we're, we're going to get more of that in the second one. All right, um, so for my fourth movie, um, now this is a movie which they haven't really released any trailers, hasn't played yet. Um, you know, this is one where there might be a concern with it being pushed to 2019, but probably not because this is coming out on November 2nd, and I feel like this is going to be a movie that's in the Oscar hunt. Um, but that is a movie called Mary Queen of Scots. Um, and as the title suggests, um, this is the story of Mary Queen of Scots and how she attempted to overthrow um, Queen Elizabeth I, her cousin, um, and ended up being thrown in jail. Um, and, but the names involved with this movie are really enough to get me excited. Um, so we have David Tennant, who is playing John Knox. Um, and th- that's of note because the director of this movie is named Josie Rourke, and she um, is a most known as a theater director. This is actually her first um, feature film that she's made, but she has directed David Tennant in several Shakespearean productions, including um, uh, Oh, There's Much to Do About Nothing back a few years ago um, at the National Theatre, I believe. Um, but uh, then the two names at the top of the cast, um, both Oscar-nominated last year, Saoirse Ronan, who will be playing Mary Queen of Scots, and Margot Robbie, who will be playing uh, Queen Elizabeth the Second uh, or the First, rather. Um, and this uh, has all the makings, just from the cast, of a really intriguing political drama political thriller and to put to the sherry on top it is written by someone who knows uh, uh, a few things about political intrigue and that is Bo Willimon who is the creator and writer of House of Cards um, which you know for me is a show that kind of went off the rails as the seasons went on but certainly the first couple of seasons um, 
you know, a really strong, really gripping political thriller. Um, and he obviously has a very juicy um, story to work with here and a stellar cast. So this, you know, like I said, I think this will be an Oscar Beatty movie, perhaps, but I think it will also be a very satisfying one. You know, any anything that can bait the Oscars into giving nominations to Margot Robbie and Sharshi Ronan, I'm totally fine with. So, not and David it. Tennant, yeah, and David Tennant, yeah, that's fair. I shouldn't forget David Tennant. I, I do like, I do appreciate his work a lot. Cool. So, my next film going into December. My last two films are actually released on the same day, uh, at least as of right now. We'll see if anything gets pushed back. But this one, I think I showed this. Tra- I got you to watch this trailer a couple weeks back. But is it's the next film from the sort of Way to Works um, shop, which is Peter Jackson's production shop, and he also contributed to the yeah. screenplay of this film. And this movie's called Mortal Engines. And so it's being directed by Christian Rivers, who I believe is his first movie. I don't think he has any other films. I could be wrong about that. Um, but it's based on the novel of the same name called Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve, who's kind of a noted steampunk writer. And I did a little bit of research on these books, and it, it is a, it is a series of books so i imagine peter jackson is you know licking his chops at the the chance to create another you know (laughs) wide-ranging franchise of films but yeah so it's produced by like i mentioned kind of peter jackson and his partner fran walsh's uh enterprise and the screenplay is done by fran walsh peter jackson and philippe boyens adapting the novel as i already mentioned not too much as it's actually been kept fairly under wraps i mean it is not coming out until december 14th which kind of makes sense. It's still pretty early in the year uh, for a lot of news coming out about it. But uh, the pl- the kind of summary of the plot is that it's it's basically set in this kind of steampunk uni- steampunk universe, kind of how I already alluded to, where millennia after much of the world was destroyed in a cataclysmic event, civil civilization has adapted a new way of living, and that is by through gigantic moving cities that chase and devour smaller traction towns. Uh, as a way of mining resources. Uh, so the main actor in this film's Robert Sheehan, and his character Tom Natsworthy is a low-class citizen of the moving city of London and finds himself fighting sur- for survival after he encounters the fugitive Hester Shaw, played by Hera Hilmar. Um, and uh, opposite, well, the, the Wikipedia summary describes it as opposites stuck together, they must forge an unlikely alliance that could change the future. So really, I don't know too much about this film. I haven't read the books. I don't want to read the books, to be very clear. Um, but I am I am a big Peter Jackson fan. I know I know he gets ridicule for his work with The Hobbit. I'm actually, I mean, they're not, I mean, The Hobbit's not as good as Lord of the Rings franchise. And I know that, I believe you're not even that big of a fan of Lord of the Rings. But... Not at all. Yeah, but I I enjoyed The Hobbit. I appreciate it for what it was, and I understand the complaints that many people have with it. But I'm I'm pretty much in. I'm pretty much down for whatever Peter Jackson's a part of. Yeah, you know, it's not something that really would have caught my eye if you hadn't sent me the trailer. But the trailer was not bad, so uh, I I will definitely check it out. Yeah, and I should mention that Hugo Weaving is attached to it uh, as well in terms of like he's playing some role in it, and knowing Hugo Weaving, it will be a well an important role if not prominent one. His- will be obscured too i'm sure but yeah i mean maybe he'll maybe this will tie into lord of the rings maybe he'll be elrond in this movie too so we'll see okay um so moving to my final movie and like i said this is the one which i am anticipating the most um out of the five uh and that is the movie under the silver lake um and the main reason which i'm anticipating this movie is the director um which is david robert mitchell uh whose last movie um 
you will know and anyone who's listened to the podcast will know is a movie that I uh, couldn't be a bigger fan of and really just blew me away the first time I saw it in the theater, and that is a movie called It Follows, um, yep. which for me might be the best horror movie ever made, um, in my opinion. <laughs> That's big and statements. Although, big the, statements. The, the, Blair, the Blair Witch Project maybe is the only thing that comes close to beating it, in my opinion. And so, and, and the thing about It Follows is that it really, like, I've never, I don't remember being so enamored with a director's work on a film, like, the first time I saw the film, as I was with It Follows. Like, I thought this was just such an impeccably directed movie. Um, and along the same lines, I thought the cinematography was, like, absolutely gorgeous in this movie. Like, it's not often that you call a horror movie, like, say it's, like, a beautiful movie, but this movie is. And, like, just the whole atmosphere of the movie um, you know, the music and, and the cinematography and also David Robert Rachel's directed directing was just like so intoxicating. Um, so I've been waiting for a new film from him ever since I saw it follows. And that is, uh, and under the silver lake is his next picture. And, um, it is also going to have Mike Jalakis doing the cinematography. who also did the cinematography for it follows. Um, so that's very exciting as well. Um, and the, the sort of the plot for this movie is that, um, a man and this is you know basing it solely off of the trailer um a, a man who sort of has like a, a one night stand with this woman sounds familiar uh, yeah uh like this very beautiful woman who like he becomes sort of enraptured with and the man the man is played by andrew garfield and the woman is played by riley keogh um and then she disappears basically um and he becomes obsessed in a sort of Jake Gyllenhaal and Zodiac type way um, with finding out what happened to her. Um, and it, you know, the, the plot it, it seems very interesting. Like, it, it looks like it's going to be kind of a whodunit um, type story. Um, but really, you know, and I, and I like Andrew Garfield, but really the thing for me, like I said, that's, that's got me so excited is to see what David Robert Mitchell and... Uh, Mike Jalakis are going to do and see if they can strike magic again like they did with It Follows. So that's what makes Under the Silver Lake my number one most anticipated movie and I should say it's coming out on June 22nd so pretty soon. Yeah, we don't have to wait too long which is pretty exciting because yeah. some of these films that I've been talking about you're going to have to wait a long time to see them. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, so my last film also releasing on December 14th uh, later this year at least as of right now um, is called Backseat which maybe belies its actual uh content it's actually a biographical drama written and directed by adam mckay who i imagine you're familiar with scott of course yeah. yep and starring christian bale amy adams steve carell bill pullman sam rockwell allison pill the list goes on like honestly the, the list goes really deep here tyler perry's in this film and i'm i'm burying the lead a little bit just to see if anyone can figure it out but this is a biographical drama about dick cheney <laughs> so very strange acting list christian bale is playing dick cheney amy adams is playing his wife lynn cheney and then steve steve Carell's playing donald rumsfeld who's secretary of defense uh, Bill Pullman is playing Nelson Rockefeller, Sam Rockwell, George W. Bush, Allison Pill as Mary Cheney, one of Dick and Lynn's daughters. And it's just, this film is just so jam-packed with phenomenal actors, The Adam McKay writing and directing. You know, I, I know some people feel different ways about the work that he's done, but it gets me excited. And also, for me, I've never been more excited about a production company, but I really love Annapurna. And what and the pictures that they normally produce, and this is an Annapurna production, so big fan of that as well. 
it's I have no idea what this what the content of the movie is actually going to be. I don't think it's been talked about necessarily. But the idea of Sam Rockwell playing George W. Bush, Christian Bale playing Dick Cheney, Amy Adams playing Lynn Cheney, Allison Pill, who maybe we're bigger fans of than like a lot of people are, but from the newsroom. Um, and she was in. She played the drummer in Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Never that's true. That. That's true. I did forget it. I won't forget it now. And then Steve, Steve Carell is playing Donald Rumsfeld. Tyler Perry, as I mentioned, playing Colin Powell. Like it's just this is this is so fascinating. This what this movie is going to be, and the fact that it's coming out this year guaranteed that it's going to be uh, in in the running for some awards probably, or if not, it's a really bad film, I guess, because it's like set up yeah. exactly like it should be for uh, award season. I know that we've talked about this film off air before, so I wanted to save some time for you to speak about it. Yeah, no, I, I think that this, I think that Adam McKay is like a, a name that I think it's very reasonable for him to be attached to this, given that his last movie was The Big Short, um, which I feel like that this movie is going to strike like a very similar tone to how the big short, um, slightly comedic, you know, pretty pretty straight laced portrayal of this, you know, true story. Um, and and I think that you know, you know like you, like you've pointed out, the the, char- the actors which are involved in this movie, like you, you can't go wrong. Really, it's 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 quite the murderous row. So I think yep. it, it'll be. Uh, it, it definitely one that I'm keeping on my radar as well. For sure, yeah. And for those of you who may be less familiar with Adam McKay, he he did both the Anchorman movies as well as, uh, I think he did Step Brothers, if I'm not wrong, and Talladega Nights, a bunch of Will Ferrell movies, which also explains yeah. why Will Ferrell's helping produce this movie. So, ah. Yeah. Which, I mean, that doesn't really mean, I don't think that means that much personally. People have different opinions about like, what a producer role is, but like it just means Will Ferrell's probably helping like distribute the film. In my view, I really doubt he's contributing much beyond his like maybe Saturday Night Live interpretation for Sam Rockwell of now George he's too Bush. Busy with uh, LAFC, he's a, That's he's true. a huge uh, huge donor for LAFC. He is. I know he's one of the owners uh, behind them. But anyway, those are a couple films. Well, more than a couple, ten films that hopefully have gotten you excited about what's still to come later this year. Uh, of course, there's going to be more movies that are announced that we're going to be excited about and. Uh, but, but, you know, we, we did a deep dive. You did a really good job, Scott. So let's take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to be introducing all of you to a new segment we're hoping to try out in a few we- in a few weeks. And then we'll be talking movie trivia schmodown and some news to wrap things up. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part three of today's Some Like It Scott. Before we dive into some recent happenings in the schmodown, Scott and I wanted to update all of you on a new segment we're hoping to do every once in a while that'll be debuting in about a month alongside our review of Avengers Infinity War. Instead of running another movie that is currently in theaters alongside Infinity War in that episode, we want to try something we're going to call our Movie Club, where we pick a movie that's been out for several or even sometimes many years that we might have missed or we think is worth a rewatch. We'll announce the movie on the episode before we discuss it, then on the following episode we'll discuss it, not dissimilar to how we normally would discuss movies that are currently in theaters. We wanted to go ahead and lay this all out for you guys, and on our next episode, uh, in a couple weeks, we'll be announcing what movie we'll be doing. Scott, did I miss anything there? 
no, that sounds uh, good to me. I, I'm excited to try this out just to, you know, show some love to maybe some lesser-known movies that a lot of people aren't aware of but uh, and have been out for a while. Um, but, you know, just give us a forum to talk about some of those. Absolutely, and I know we've, we've, we have tossed around so many different ideas for this, and we'll be uh, making our decision and sharing that with you guys in the next couple weeks to, for our first iteration of this. All right, hopefully that's something that also you guys are excited about, along with all those movies we talked about just before, but now it's time to turn our eyes back to the past and a little movie trivia schmodown. What has been happening in the schmodown these last two weeks, Scott? Tell us. Well, so much has been happening, as a matter of fact. Um, two weeks ago, or you know, the week before last, we had a, uh, a big match, big team match between the Shire Wolves, uh, finally making their debut, that being Clark Wolf and Rachel Cushing, um, and they played off against the team um, called the Lion, simply called the Lions Den. This is a match that's been teased ever since the Spectacular last year, um, that team being Ken Napsok and... Bobby Gucci himself, Tom Dagnino. Um, and, you know, I, I have to say, going into this match, I kind of thought that the Shirewolves were going to wipe the floor with them. But uh, this match was very suspenseful and came down to the very end. Um, for a while, it, it honestly, it looks like the Lions Den might be able to pull it out. Um, I, what was your impression of what went down? Yeah, it's been it's been a minute since I watched it, but if I remember correctly, Ken carried the team for the Lions Den. Yeah, well, that was kind of to be expected, but I you know I just didn't know how much how far Ken's knowledge could take them, but he did take them pretty far. Yeah, he did a great job, and and then I will say Dagnino came up with a couple of clutch answers later on in the game. I don't know if yeah. the match was like as tight as you're describing, because didn't they win it on like their two point question or or was it their three yeah, point? But. Um... The fact that it wasn't a TKO. The fact happened in round two that made me think that. Oh, there was a challenge. There was a challenge that they. There were a couple of rules violations things that happened that I think that um, I think that after what happened with the respin, Christian was probably very good, very glad that they didn't end up affecting the outcome of the match. Yeah, it was it was Charlie. It was Charlie's Angels. That was the the question related to Charlie's Angels, and there was a question that was asking for the I think it was the Charlie Angel sequel, and Ken answers with it was it was tom that answered or it was tom that answered with charlie's angels and then um <laughs> christian asked for clarification on which one and then he said oh the second one like whatever the title Char- of the second charlie's one is angels full throttle and yeah. then clark objected because she said well charlie's angels is actually a movie so when he said charlie's angels he actually gave an answer and an incorrect one yeah so then they asked him another question which he ended up getting right also so yeah so I, I was on, I mean, I am partial to the Shire Wolves compared to the Lions in as much as I do love their characters and, and love Tom Dagnino uh, as a part of the Schmodown, but I was, I definitely thought that was the wrong decision. Like, he definitely should not have been given the points for Charlie's Angels, because I don't think that he, I think he was saying it was the first Charlie's Angels. That was just my take. I don't know about yours. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree also. Um, I don't want to give Bobby Gucci too much credit when it comes to actual truth knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but like I said, I'm, I'm sure Christian is probably glad that he didn't have to pick up the pieces once again um, because he's definitely been hearing about it since the respin incident in the top ten Patriots match. For sure, um, but 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 you know the the good the good succeeded. Yes, the Shire Wolves were able to triumph in their first uh, first team match, and I think this is just the first of many wins to come for this uh, powerhouse team. Um, and we will see who they take on next. I think they kind of just said, 
in their interviews that they wanted to kind of earn their way to a title shot. They, they would honestly, they would just take on whoever uh, was in their way next. So yep, um, more to come. That that should be good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then on Friday we had uh, two newcomers playing in the singles division: uh, Ethan Irwin um, and Yolanda Machado. Yep, um, and. Yolanda, she played a decent match, but honestly, this match was all about Ethan Irwin, who... This was a very um, short match. This was like a 20-minute match or something like that. It was like very I know, short. Yeah. He made pretty quick quick work of her. And, you know, we've seen this in the showdown before where someone comes in and, like, has an incredible debut. Uh, probably the best example is William Viviani, who had a perfect game in his first game. And ever since then has never really been able to live up to that hype. But um, Ethan Irwin definitely has a lot of hype surrounding him after... Um, that that his his initial match, even Christian said, I think he's going to be the next great player in the showdown. Um, so you know, yeah, we'll see who he who he takes on next. Yeah, it. I would be really sweating it if I was anybody in the top ten uh, that gets challenged by Ethan Irwin. So yeah, he seemed like he had a very wide berth of knowledge. Although to be fair, he did hit Spinner's Choice in round two. So yeah, th- it's always important to note that when that happens. And, and I will say, I think that is it was it Christian and Mark at the table, or not, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but they I think so, yeah. yeah they they definitely mentioned that in the, you know right at the end of the at the end of the match and, and say you know you can't it, it, so much of it comes down sometimes to what you land on in round two. Right. And he got lucky, so we'll see how deep his knowledge goes. Maybe he gets unlucky if he can pull off something like uh, dance movies that the Shirewolves managed to grind their way through in the match we were just discussing a few minutes ago. Yeah, that's that. That was when I. I that's right. That was when I started getting a little uh, uh, nervous, worried about the Shirewolves' yeah. chances when they hit uh, dance movies, and yep. then when the Lions Den hit something that was one of their strengths. I think maybe it was Charlie Sheen or Sly and Arnie or something. Um, but yeah, uh, so. Ethan Irwin winning that match, and then this past week we had the live event. Yes, the the big live matches from a few weeks ago got released uh, one at a time. On Tuesday we had the team match between the Wildberries and the Real Rejects. Definitely two of the most entertaining teams in the Schmodown, uh, and I would say that as far as entertainment value goes, this match delivered, and the trivia aspect was really not that bad either. Um, yeah, I will say that this teams, match was just it has to be in the most absurd one that I've watched. Uh, I know that you've watched all of them. I haven't, but like, just to just to cut to the chase, like this match ended with the both teams getting their five point question correct and missing some very some like much easier two and three yeah. point questions. I think the crowd fueled a lot of it because you know the Wildberries obviously very crazy characters with Makuga and Dewberry, um, but yeah, I think the crowd really played into why it got so crazy. But yeah, uh, Makuga missing a very. Uh, a very manageable three-point question about Martin Scorsese and DiCaprio yeah, uh, that he definitely should have gotten after asking for two JTE rules. Um, but then the, the final question came up, and I actually knew the answer. I knew that it was Rising Sun, but I was not sure if the Wildberries were going to know this or not, but it became clear as soon as they asked the um, knew question it. that Dewberry knew it. Um, and Dewberry actually, I think he's a very underrated player. He actually had a great match, and he... Um, especially in round two when they hit comedy like he ran through the first three questions in comedy like it was nothing yeah Um, he ran he ran a little too quickly through one of the answers though yeah yeah he needs to uh you know he has obviously areas where he's better in than others but i think if he hits one of those areas he's pretty pretty in manny um yeah you know yeah he just he just has to probably not rip too many shots before his matches and it might be deeper on his trivia but that would just defeat the purpose of the wild berries i think that's Um, true that's true 
but yeah, so the Wildberries ended up getting their first win. Um, they are not going to be the Cleveland Browns like they said they were and go like 0-15. Um, the Real Rejects, meanwhile, dropped to, I believe, 1-5. and um, And, you know, we've seen teams before who, after they lose a few matches, kind of fade away. Uh, but I hope that doesn't happen for the Real Rejects because they're a very entertaining team. Um, and I do think that they still have some a lot to offer. I mean, they have faced some tough teams, to be fair, in their six matches. Uh, and John Humphrey, in particular, we know that he's a very good player from the free-for-all last year when he went the most rounds of anyone besides Dan Merle. Um, so we, we know that he has the knowledge. Um, so I would definitely like to see more from the real rejects in the future. And, of course, we'd love to see more from the Wildberries, and I'm sure we will see more from them. Yeah, um, agreed. So then, on Friday, we had the much-hyped live singles match um, the first matchup, first singles matchup ever for two of the legends of the Schmodown, John Roca and JTE. You know, JTE pointed out a lot that Roca had never beaten him, but of course he's only referring to team matches. Um, well, he was talking about there's like another, it's not Collide, well, it's not the Schmodown. Oh, right, there's movie fights also yeah. on Screen Junkies. Yeah. And they have gone um, off, they have, they have faced off each other, against each other in that, and JTE is true. Not. Yep. Um, but so, but so this was you know kind of a, a big match for Roka. Obviously, he takes the game very seriously, and he oh has, does he <laughs> do what? Oh, do, does he take it seriously? I couldn't, I couldn't yeah, tell. I, I haven't noticed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all you have to do is go back and watch when he won the title, um, and that tells you all you need to know about how seriously Roka takes it. But um, <clears throat> so this is a very big match for him. Obviously, going up against his one of his arch nemeses in JTE, um, and honestly, this was really. He kind of controlled this game from the beginning. He, uh, well, he, it, it was pretty close after round one, I believe, tied at six, perhaps. It was, um, yeah, he tied at six. And then, and then in round two, um, JTE hit Sly and Arnie, which you would think would be a great category for him, uh, but Roka ended up getting two steals. Um, yep. One after JTE made a crucial uh, misspeak yeah. in one yeah. of his answers, um, and then so so Roka had a good, you know, he had a good. Some good steals, and then um, going into wasn't it two uh, misspeaks? Even wasn't it Eliza Dushku and like the sixth day, something like that? Uh, yeah, the, he said the sixth man said this, or the sixth day, and whatever the answer was was the other one. Um, yeah, and then he also said like Eliza Dushku, uh, Alicia Dushku, yeah, Alicia Dushku instead of Eliza Dushku, which is just a classic JTE moment, right there. <laughs> it really is. Um, but uh, so then, but then, so Rucka had some good steals, and then he ended up spinning uh, westerns, which obviously is one of his strong points. He got seven out of eight. Sure, I'm sure Brian Davids, who, who runs the uh, Slowdown Uncensored on Twitter, will be very quick to point out that uh, Rucka got a very favorable wheel with both biopics and westerns. Uh, but you know, you can decide how much you want to read into his conspiracy theories. But um, uh, but Rucka did spin westerns, uh, ended up doing very well. Uh, Going into the final round, he had a decent advantage, and uh, then JTE ended up hitting a Westerns question, <laughs> which was about the man who shot Liberty Valance, the movie that I talked about on our last episode, um, and JTE could not pull the answer, uh, and Roka took the victory, um, which means that Roka will now face off against Drew McQueenie in what should be a pretty high contender match, probably like a number two contender match, I would say at this point, um, because they're, they're they're both pretty high up there in the rankings. Um, yep. And JTE will, he'll, he'll keep doing JTE things. Um, 
And yeah, you have anything to add on this match? No, nah, man, you covered it pretty well. I just uh, the the steals, the 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 vocal slip ups from from JT yeah. were were deadly. As far as like, and as far as like the live environment in general, I thought it was really. Uh, enjoyable. Uh, you know, they've already announced that they're going to do another live match sometime this summer um, in Los Angeles. Um, so I think that that's it, it adds a lot to the, you know sort of the atmosphere of the Schmodown and you know gets the competitors more pumped up and everything. So it, you know Christian always says, "Oh, this is a sport." Um, so it really makes it feel like a sport when they do these live events. For sure, I'm definitely looking forward to more live, more more. <laughs> well, I guess post live event viewings of live events, <laughs> but nevertheless. Yeah, so that's what I got on the Schmodown. Cool. All right, so to finish up today's episode, we just have a few news topics to go through, first of which being the X-Men movies that were supposed to be released this year, which are X-Men The Dark Phoenix, which is a follow-up to uh, X-Men Apocalypse uh, from a few years back, and also uh, The New Mutants have both been delayed to 2019. The Dark Phoenix only pushed back a couple months because it was released in the second. It was going to be released in the second half of this year, and that, that's just for some uh, reshoots. It sounds like nothing, nothing too major there. But uh, the New Mutants, which was originally, I think, just as of like a couple months ago, supposed to come out in April, has been pushed back to like second half of 2019. I've I've heard that like most of this movie is being reshot, which is kind of. Uh, concerning for the film it, yeah i don't know if you're familiar with with the new mutants but it's supposed to be a more uh horror take on superhero films interesting I'm yeah not familiar with that yeah it's supposed That's to not dissimilar to how logan is kind of like a breath of fresh air into the superhero genre in terms of it being kind of a more i don't know thoughtful grittier grit, yeah. exactly yeah this is also supposed to be another breath of fresh air with a horror take on on the superhero genre, so we'll see if that can how that continues to develop. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm a big. I didn't love X Men Apocalypse, but I think that um, Days of Future Past is one of the best superhero films out there. Which was the second film in like the this different this separate timeline, or I don't even know how you describe it because the timeline's kind of messy with X Men. But yeah, I I uh, enjoyed. Um... The first two movies, I have not seen X-Men Apocalypse, but I did enjoy both yeah. First Class and Days of Future Past. Yeah, X-Men Apocalypse is nothing to write home about. I watched it just because I am a big fan of, of the franchise. But The Dark Phoenix, which is going to focus on Jean Grey, and the Jean Grey version played by Sophie Turner who, of Game of Thrones fame. So sure. I was really intrigued by that, really interested in it. And uh, hopefully the reshoots are positive. I mean, it's not uncommon for movies to be reshot. They probably just, the nature of, of these big film franchises is that they, they want their release dates uh, flag, flag flagpole in the ground way ahead of time. And I think that, you know, in a different world, this movie probably wouldn't have been announced um, at a date, but just because it's part of the X-Men franchise. So I'm nothing concerned about that. But the New Mutants is maybe a big question mark. Anyway, so moving on, in, in Stephen King news, we talked to, uh, I don't know, I think it came up earlier in this in this episode, briefly. And The Shining, yeah. And The Shining, you're right, absolutely. Uh, James Wan is attached to direct an adaptation of Stephen King's The Tommyknockers. I don't know how you feel about this, but I believe, uh, well, James Wan is, I'm familiar with, based on his superhero uh, fil- film that he's done, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, well, I'm not familiar as much with The Tommyknockers, but I do I, I do enjoy Stephen King's work, and James Wan is a very good horror director, um, so I think he'll he'll do a good job with this. Yeah, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, James Wan is the director of um, a- Aquaman coming up, so uh, that's, oh, that's coming out later this year. I don't know if you knew that. That's why I'm familiar with him. Uh, I mean, yeah. I've, I've seen other... I mean, he did, like, Furious 7, I think, or something like that, and he's done Insidious... 
I think. Yeah, I think Justin. I think Justin Lin might have done the Furious movies, but um, he did the original James Saw Wan. movie. Okay, James Wan did. Uh, he yeah, he's done Saw and Insidious uh, are his main uh, yeah. horror credits. Yeah. So yeah, and now he's doing. He's releasing Aquaman later this year, which is interesting to have a hard director taking on a superhero film. So we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, he's attached currently. We'll see how it develops to the Tommy Knockers, but it's very early stages for that. And directors change all the time. In a bit heavier news, Cameron Diaz is reportedly retired from acting. I saw this like a couple days ago, and I was just like, "What?" Scott Mance. Scott Mance finally took her down. I think this is, if you if you follow Schmodown lore, Scott Scott Mance has a long running feud with Cameron Diaz because he hit her category a bunch of times in the wheel round, and like it it doomed him. So he posted on the Schmodown Facebook page on this story that. He finally, or what was it? He said, "Was it something I said in response to the article?" <laughs> um, so I think he finally. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like I haven't seen her in a movie in a long time, anyway. Really. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm not someone who follows Cameron Diaz, but like the last big yeah. movie that I remember her being, it was like Night and Day. That's exactly what I was thinking too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if she has really done I can see really her going much. into like TV. I mean, I don't know if she said she's retiring from acting in general or just from movies. Yeah, but. Like she said. She, could, you know, she said she, acting in general, but yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say I feel like she could be involved with like a Big Little Lies type thing, but that's true. That's a good point. Total, that's uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I'm not sure. So her last movie was in 2014. Um, so we'll see. She hasn't. Maybe she's effectively been retired since then. So maybe it's just a <laughs> announcement. Maybe no one's get, no one's giving her roles anymore. Maybe. I mean, maybe who knows. All right, in, in news that I think we'll both find we have our two cents to add to, Colin Trevorrow is back for Jurassic World 3, allegedly, uh, according to reports. And we both have we both have our own feelings about Colin Trevorrow. Uh, but I'll let you take the lead on this one. Well, I mean, just the fact that there's going to be a Jurassic World 3. I mean, let Oh, that's not, that, that's not that surprising. Too, that's not that surprising. Come on. That movie no, made so not, much money. It's not surprising, but it doesn't, it, like, it garners distaste for me. Because sure. I did not like Jurassic World at all. Yeah. I thought it was terrible. But, um, Ooh, okay. But yeah, you know, I, I guess there's there's some value in giving someone second chances. Um, I, I'm just glad that Colin Trevorrow, like, is not going to touch the um, Star Wars franchise now uh, because <laughs> I certainly care a lot more about it than the Jurassic Park franchise. And the, um, well, yeah, I mean, and to, to not be more coy, to be a little less coy about this, it, it's his work on the Book of Henry that we're really concerned about. Yes, yes. Uh, of course, that was basically what got him blackballed from um, directing the next Star Wars movie. Um, it was so, so bad that, that Disney was like, you cannot direct one of our films. Yeah, I still think we should watch The Book of Henry for an episode of this podcast, personally. But um, we'll see. that's something we can discuss, <laughs> yeah, uh, because apparently it's just laughably horrible. Um, but yeah, I don't have high hopes at all for Jurassic World 3. Um, hopefully, uh, I won't even have to see it. Um, Hopefully we won't talk about it on this podcast. Uh, so sorry, man. I think I think I think it's big enough to make this podcast. So uh, we'll see in two years or in four years or whatever this is coming out. But um, sure. But yeah. I mean, I'm sure that Colin Trevorrow will also have done another really crappy movie to get him blackballed off this franchise. So we'll see yeah, how that's, that's develops. That's the hope right now is that he he, he has some more other brainchild like the Book of Henry that just gets him. Yeah. You know. Yep. Blackballed again. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, well, but, but, I mean, not to be too harsh on him, hopefully, hopefully he doesn't have another misstep like that, and, and hopefully he can yeah. start creating some, some good movies, because in spite of your distaste for Jurassic World, it was a well-received film. All right, I think... I don't, I don't know why, but... <laughs> well, fair enough. All right. We all have our own opinions. 
<laughs> I think that should just about do it for episode seven of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, do you have any other parting thoughts to leave us with today other than go watch Thoroughbreds? Yeah, go watch Thoroughbreds. Um, you know, catch up on the Schmodown. I think there's some good matches coming up this week. Above the line against Modoc is coming up soon, which is going to be a epic team match. So, yeah. Yeah, and if I had any parting thoughts, I'd say go see Love, Simon. Because uh, I think yeah. that that's still, that still should should be getting attention. It's a great movie, especially because there is a little bit of a lull right now before Infinity War comes out. Okay, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, I am at Scarby Dent, as usual, and I'll be uh, putting out some Indians tweets now that uh, now that baseball has started. Yeah, they've already started. I've, I've seen a few of them. I think I liked one yesterday, so we'll see if they're, that continues. They're about to lose right now, unfortunately. So get but you said they were tweets. winning. That you said that they yeah, were winning. Yeah, but then the bullpen blew up, so... Ah, you hate to see that. Okay, I can be found at S, at S Shelton 2013 That was great. <laughs> Over on Twitter. That's my brand. More importantly, however, we want to remind you about our Patreon page, and we'd love it if you checked us out over there, especially so if you decide to support us to help us cover the cost of making the show. That's at uh, www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you, however, choose not to support us on Patreon, that's totally okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, where we'd really appreciate it if you rated, reviewed us, subscribed, shared all that jazz, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, I think I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a return to our two-movie format, hopefully, actually reviewing Isle of Dogs this time, alongside John Krasinski's horror film A Quiet Place. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. (laughs) 